Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, pumpkin carving is one of my very, very favorite Halloween activities. Oh, hooray. I love it. Like, I love it. Um, And I'm talking about that on Behind the Scenes Forever. It's Halloween season. Halloween, Halloween, I'm excited about it. Um, Jack-o'-lanterns have become one of the most iconic symbols of Halloween, but their origin story is not super well documented um, because it's not as though someone just invented them or even a culture invented them uh, or if they were part of a specific event and then became popular, although they are associated mostly with one culture, but we'll talk about all of that. So tracing their roots... um, I think I had told you a while back while I was working on this, I'm trying to figure out the shape of it because it does Mm. involve some folklore, some agriculture, there's some literary influence that all come together to sort of make the jack-o'-lantern as important visually to Halloween season as it is today. So we're going to talk about all of that now. (laughs) So the history of jack-o'-lanterns starts with an Irish folk story about a man called Stingy Jack. There was a poem to tell the tale of Stingy Jack that came out in 1851, written by Hercules Ellis. This was included in a book called The Rhyme Book, which collected a number of folk tales and told them in verse. The story of Stingy Jack is a lot older, though, and there are many variations. This 1851 poem opens with a rather unsavory depiction of Jack and his unkind ways and it calls him by his more formal name of John rather than Jack. Quote, Greater churl was never known on this earth than stingy John. From his door the poor were turned unrelieved and cursed and spurned. But as this version of Stingy Jack's story plays out, While he is traveling home one night, Jack encounters a poor stranger who claims that they are near death and they ask for help. And surprisingly, 
Jack offers aid. He picks the stranger up and he puts him on his horse and brings him to his home, where he feeds this man and gives him a place to sleep. But then the next morning, Jack awakens to find that the poor traveler that he helped was actually an angel, who says to him in the poem, quote, Though called a churl by all around, mercy in your heart I've found. Ask three gifts, I'll give them you, and my blessing add thereto. After contemplating this offer, Jack asks for the following, quote, I wish whoever takes my chair may be fastened firmly there, he to chair and chair to ground, till my leave to go be found. Next I pray whatever fools meddle with my box of tools may be fastened to the wall, till to let them go I call. Thirdly, sir, I would implore that who breaks my sycamore may be fixed fast to the tree till I choose to set him free. And so the angel, sighing, grants these three wishes. But this seals Jack's fate, because in not asking for heaven when offered anything by the angel, and instead making wishes that are intended to trap people in his control, he has doomed himself to never enter the pearly gates. But Jack doesn't really realize that anything bad is going to happen to him at this point because his life goes pretty well. He's healthy, his flocks flourish, and he gets really rich. Uh, But eventually, like everyone, he grows old and his end of life nears. And because he has doomed himself to hell with these wishes, the devil sends one of his servants up from hell to fetch Jack. And when that servant comes to Jack's door, Jack invites him in and offers him a seat. And that seals the devil's servant to it because of that first wish. Jack then beats the servant. This is all a pretty violent story, I will say. And then makes him a deal that if he promises to never come back, he will be set free. And the servant of the devil agrees to this. Of course, the devil has other servants and sends another one. And that servant is aware of what happened to the first This emissary is adamant that Jack has to report to hell, and Jack says that he'll go, but he has to fix his shoes first or he won't be able to make the journey. So he asks the devil's servant number two to hand him an awl from his toolbox. That, of course, traps that servant. Once again, Jack beats the devil's servant and offers him freedom for the promise that he will not return. There is another. Uh, The third visit that Jack gets is from the devil himself, who is tired of his minions being tricked. And according to the poem, quote, said Jack, my lord, I'm ready, quite, but dead lame is old Jack. You must go get me a good stout stick or take me on your back. So the devil goes to Jack's nearby sycamore tree to get a walking stick from it and is then fastened tight to the tree where Jack flails him for a long time. He flails him so much that the devil's roars are heard as far away as Germany, Italy, and Spain, according to this poem. The devil is finally freed by Jack after he promises that he will never take Jack to hell. But that means that when Jack dies, his soul has nowhere to go. So this poem concludes, At length Jack died, and when his soul was from his body riven, it could not get through hell's wide gate, nor yet through those of heaven. By his free choice he lost the last, and Satan did not fail his oath to keep and Jack to sweep from hell's gates with his flail. Then since Jack is unfit for heaven and hell won't give him room, his ghost is forced to walk the earth until the day of doom. 
A lantern in his hand he bears the way by night to show, and from its flame he got the name of Jack-o'-lantern now. So there's a more common version of this folktale that predates the poem. In that version, Jack invites the devil to drink with him at a pub, but he does not have the money to pay. To cover the bill, he makes a deal with the devil, offering his soul for money. The devil agrees and turns himself into a coin, so the plan is Jack will use the coin to pay for the drinks, and then the devil will return to his normal shape and leave, but Jack does not pay his bill with the devil coin. Instead, he walks out on the bill and puts the coin in his pocket along with a cross. That keeps the devil from assuming his true form. And eventually, Jack decides to let the devil free from this trap for a reason that is usually determined by the teller's choosing, like guilt or fear. And he makes the deal with Satan at this moment that in exchange for freedom, the devil cannot bother Jack for 10 years. That seems like a foolish deal to make, but whatever. When the devil sees Jack again after that allotted period has passed, he gets tricked again. This time, Jack says he will go willingly after he has an apple from a tree that is not too far off from where this conversation is taking place, and he asks the devil if he will climb up into the tree to fetch an especially good apple. The devil obliges. Clearly, the devil is kind of a ding-dong in these stories because he just gets tricked over and over. And while Satan is up this tree, Jack carves a cross on the trunk, and that prevents the devil from getting down. Once again, Jack frees the devil, this time makes a deal that his soul cannot be taken to hell when he dies. The devil agrees and is freed, and both of them just go about their business until Jack does finally die of old age. At that point, he's refused entry into heaven and sent by St. Peter to hell, but the devil can't take him either, per their previous arrangement. So instead, he gives Jack a small flame from the fires of hell Jack puts the flame into a carved-out turnip to use as a lamp, and because his soul can't go to heaven or hell, he just wanders the earth until Judgment Day with this little turnip light. Yeah, sometimes that's described as a flame, sometimes as a a burning charcoal from the fires of hell or a spark. It comes up a little bit differently. But no matter the details, the story of Stingy Jack and his lantern is really not connected to Halloween initially, but was a way to explain the idea of floating lights that people saw at night. The same thing you may have heard called Will-o'-the-Wisp or some other thing. So those floating lights associated with bogs are said to lure travelers off course and to their doom. They are described as being perpetually out of reach, so as a person approaches, they seem to move away. And there is... A scientific explanation for this phenomenon, there are a couple, actually. So it's believed that marsh gas, which is high in methane, sometimes produces light as the flora around it decomposes and creates a chemical reaction. That's a process called chemiluminescence. The other explainer is bioluminescence, which happens when a chemical reaction produces light in living organisms, and it's not a decomposition thing. But before that science was understood, the various myths and lore were used to explain those bog lights. And other cultures have completely different explanations for this phenomenon, but this Irish folktale is the one that that gives rise to the jack-o'-lantern. This also reminds me of the Mako light, which we just talked about. Yes! Uh, So, how did this tale of the doomed, untethered soul of Stingy Jack 
lead to kids carrying plastic pumpkins around during trick-or-treat time. We're going to talk about the history of the pumpkin before we get to that, and we will do that after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Pumpkins are native to North and Central America. 
In the book Pumpkin, the Curious History of an American Icon, author Cindy Ott makes the case that the pumpkin may have been the first plant that was transitioned from wild to cultivated by people living in the Americas, making them a keystone of the transition to an agricultural versus foraging society. The oldest cultivated pumpkin seeds we know of came from the Oaxaca Highlands in Mexico, and they're somewhere between 8,000 and 10,000 years old. That, according to Ott, makes them 2,000 years older than any known corn or bean seeds. But those early pumpkins were nothing like the behemoths you can find today at a supermarket. They were small. Their range was pretty close to a modern regulation baseball or a softball in range. The reasons that pumpkins became so popular among early American cultures is one that's debated. They would not have been the very fleshy, sweet version that we have today, but a lot more bitter with a thinner wall of flesh until they were selectively bred for having a bigger size and sweeter flavor. But they were consistent and reliable as a crop. One of the reasons that sprouting pumpkin seeds is a popular classroom activity today is because it is really easy to do. Pumpkins grow quickly, and they would have added variety to the diet of early agrarian groups. Yeah, if you're like me, and you dump all your stuff in your composter without a whole lot of thought, sometimes you get surprise gift pumpkin vines. (laughs) They're just so easy to grow. They just want to sprout. By the 1200s, indigenous peoples on the eastern seaboard of North America had a really established practice of growing pumpkins, and they had been standard crops even earlier than that in other areas of the continent. So well before Europeans made their way across the Atlantic, the pumpkin was pretty plentiful. Exact varieties and specific timelines of them are really difficult to trace because those things were shifting year to year as sweeter versions were sought out for eating and other members of the Cucurbitaceae family were cultivated for other uses, for example, gourds that could be hollowed out and used as vessels. And these were grown alongside corn and beans in what is known today as the Three Sisters method of planting. It's also called companion planting. And in this arrangement, the corn serves as a trellis for the beans to grow up. The beans stabilize the corn and add nitrogen to the soil, which helps support the pumpkins and the corn. And the pumpkins, or their close relatives, because it's not always a pumpkin, protect the soil and roots of the other plants while suppressing weed growth. Pumpkins are a good source of vitamin A, with potassium, iron, and vitamin C also included in their nutritional profile. So their benefits make it pretty clear why they became an important part of early North American agriculture. The word pumpkin doesn't come from the languages of these indigenous peoples, though. Field pumpkins, like the big orange ones that are so closely associated with autumn and its holidays, those were grouped with a lot of other varieties of crops under the name squash. That word, according to the Library of Congress, is from the word squash, which is a Narragansett word referring to something that's eaten raw. The word pumpkin has roots in the Greek word pepon, which means large melon. I feel like I said that as though it were French. Uh, When this was adopted into French... That word was transitioned to pompon, and then that became pumpion in Great Britain before evolving into pumpkin. 
So when Europeans came to North America, they eventually adopted the pumpkin into their own diet as a staple food for all of the reasons it had already been popular with indigenous peoples. In addition to the benefits we've already mentioned, there is the bonus that pumpkins can be used just about in their entirety, right? You can roast and eat the seeds, the blossoms can be eaten, the skins can be eaten. You can also treat the skins for other uses like weaving. So clearly it's a great crop. So now that the pumpkin's place in North American agriculture is established, we're going to jump back to the story of Stingy Jack. Because Jack's spirit, wandering the world, unable to enter heaven or hell, carried a turnip lantern He came known as Jack of the Lantern, or Jack-o'-lantern, but he wasn't the only one called that name. The term Jack-o'-lantern was also used to describe night watchmen who carried lanterns as they patrolled their areas. The use of the name Jack-o'-lanterns interchangeably with Will-o'-the-wisp or other names to describe that eerie and uncatchable light we talked about was well-established by the late 18th century. I found it very easy to find numerous newspaper articles that reference them by the jack-o'-lantern name. One, appearing in the Bath Journal in October 1779, is about pirate Paul Jones, and it states, quote, Paul Jones resembles a jack-o'-lantern to mislead our mariners and terrify our coasts. He is no sooner seen than lost. Another, printed in February 1792 in the Freeman's Journal or the North American Intelligencer, included a criticism of the French nobility, which read in part, quote, Unfortunately, in their search of light, they turn their backs upon the steady luminary reason and follow certain jack-o'-lanterns that lead them astray. Accordingly, they have lost themselves in the public opinion. One article that appeared in the Portland Gazette in September of 1798 begins as though it's an etymology of the word Jacobin, suggesting that the final syllable was really Lynn, which was an evolution from Lan as an abbreviation of lantern, and that Jacobin and jack-o'-lantern are the same word. This is, in actuality, a criticism of the Jacobins, comparing them to a thing that seems appealing but is in fact not. The article includes a list of characteristics of the jack-o'-lantern and concludes with, quote, to all appearances, it is an angel of light, but in reality, it is an angel of darkness. In short, it is the very devil all over, and so my good reader is a Jacobin. So the idea of a jack-o'-lantern was well established before that 1851 poem that we mentioned in the first segment of the show. And some versions of the Stingy Jack story also account for the idea that other people started carving their own turnips and potatoes to have scary faces. And they put these creatures in their windows to scare off the wandering jack or any other creature. This actually becomes a little bit confusing because it appears that there, in telling this story, there has been a commingling of two ideas. So the explainer of the bog lights, known as Ignis Fatuus or Fool's Fire that we've been talking about, and the Celtic Samhain celebration. Samhain, which means end of summer, was a festival that marked the transition to autumn. This was also the Celtic New Year and was associated not just with the changing of the seasons, but also with death and rebirth. The end of harvest and the preparation for winter has come to be associated with a lot of concepts, and some of them are on the spooky and scary side, although 
we don't really have a lot of reliable information about the actual historical practices. It's believed that the Celtic festival, which marked the delineation between the light and dark parts of the year, also marked a time when the living and the dead might have contact. It may have been a time when the world of the supernatural and of deities was believed to be accessible or at least visible to mortal humans. So, based on what we know, there are some pretty easy-to-recognize similarities between historical Samhain activities and modern Halloween, including dressing up in costume. So, while today's costume party might be about finding the funniest or most impressive ensemble, the participants in Samhain were more likely selecting disguises to confuse evil spirits. Bonfires are also believed to have been a common practice as a way to protect the gathered celebrants, and fortune-telling may have been part of the festivities because this was a time of looking to the year ahead. After the Romans defeated the Celts in the first century, Celtic paganism was subsumed into Christian ideology through a careful rewrite of the narrative of the meanings of various practices, kind of along the lines of, oh, no, 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 that thing you've always done has actually been a Christian thing all along. This was especially the case when All Saints Day was declared in the year 609, and then it was handily moved a couple centuries later to coincide with Samhain. And this is when the day before All Saints Day, known as All Hallows' Eve, started to develop the identity that we would come to recognize as the holiday of Halloween. Coming up, we'll talk about how this braiding together of folklore and holidays led to the jack-o'-lantern being a symbol of the season. We'll do that right after we hear from some sponsors that keep the show going. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. 
Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So all of this talk of Stingy Jack of pumpkin crops and Sawin brings us back to jack-o'-lanterns. There are historians who believe that vegetables may have been carved to look like heads as part of the Celtic celebration. And the Celts of the pre-Roman era did have a lot of mythology about the importance of the head, and these carvings may have represented the heads of vanquished enemies, but that is just a theory. But a completely different explanation is that people used root vegetable lanterns for Samhain because they were going around their villages searching for libations. That was another part of the celebration. And they just needed lights. It wasn't necessarily symbolic. And that simple need may have evolved into the lanterns carved to have faces on them. Whether that was the case or not, we do know that carving turnips and potatoes with faces and putting a candle inside had become a common practice in Ireland by the 18th century. And it does make some sense that the story that explained the strange marsh lights and the traditions of Samhain had become intertwined because both of those stories are tied together geographically. So by the time Irish immigrants made their way to North America, starting in the early 18th century, they brought this vegetable carving tradition, which had already been part of the autumn celebrations, with them. And then they discovered that the pumpkins that were plentiful in their new home were a lot easier to carve than the other vegetables and were more plentiful as well. Before long, pumpkins carved into lanterns with faces were common in the autumn and not just in Irish homes. One of the cultural moments that helped make jack-o'-lanterns popular in the U.S. did not actually feature any jack-o'-lanterns. That was the 1820 publication of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. So if you're thinking of that story, and spoiler alert if you have somehow managed to never read it or see an adaptation of it, you may recall the Headless Horseman throwing a jack-o'-lantern at Ichabod Crane near the end of the book. But Irving never wrote that it was a jack-o'-lantern, just a pumpkin. The moment where Ichabod is attacked culminates in this excerpt. Quote, Just then he saw the goblin rising in his stirrups and in the very act of hurling his head at him. 
Ichabod endeavored to dodge the horrible missile, but too late. It encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. He was tumbled headlong into the dust, and Gunpowder, the Black Steed, and the Goblin Rider passed by like a whirlwind. And then at the end of the next paragraph, quote, on the bank of a broad part of the brook where the water ran deep and black was found the hat of the unfortunate Ichabod and close behind it, a shattered pumpkin. Just a pumpkin, not a jack-o'-lantern. But illustrations of that scene have almost always included a pumpkin with a face carved into it, starting very shortly after it was published. And that helps cement the idea that jack-o'-lanterns had been an integral part of white European culture in North America from just about the very beginning. And a jack-o'-lantern was explicitly mentioned 15 years later in the text of Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Great Carbuncle. The titular carbuncle is a gem that a band of adventurers are discussing what to do with, One of the characters plans to conceal it under his clothes, and another replies, Hide it under thy cloak, sayest thou? Why, it will gleam through the holes and make thee look like a jack-o'-lantern. It's unclear whether this reference means the carved pumpkin or the glimmering lights over a marsh. Hawthorne also describes a pumpkin jack-o'-lantern, but doesn't use that phrase in his 1852 story, Feathertop. The character Feathertop is a scarecrow with a carved pumpkin for a head, and he comes to life. Yeah, I favor the side that it in the carbuncle he means a carved pumpkin jack-o'-lantern, but it's up for debate. Uh, From there, the jack-o'-lantern started making appearances throughout poetry, stories, and art in the United States. You can find it on woodblock prints starting in the mid-19th century. And it was frequently seen on magazine covers during Halloween season by the 1920s. By the 1930s, as trick-or-treating became part of the standard Halloween fun, jack-o'-lanterns were considered an essential part of the festivities. So much so that an article in the Honolulu Advertiser from October 31st, 1931, appeared with the headline, Wailua Children Use Papayas for Pumpkins to Scare on Halloween. This article explains that because Honolulu did not have pumpkins, they still had to have jack-o'-lanterns, and so they used papayas. This write-up includes several stories of kids using them to scare people, including one where a kid hid in a hibiscus bush with his papaya jack-o'-lantern and scared passersby with it. Early trick-or-treaters used jack-o'-lanterns to light their way as they walked the neighborhood streets for their candy halls. This meant that the lantern was just that. It was a light source, not a candy receptacle. Often these were made of materials like paper mache instead of actual pumpkins to make them easier to carry. These transitioned away from candles as the light to simple batteries with bulbs as safety concerns arose. And by the 1950s, plastic battery-powered pumpkin lanterns started to appear. Over time, the plastic jack-o'-lantern transitioned from guiding light to candy receptacle. In 1952, the Quad City Times of Davenport, Iowa, suggested a series of party ideas that one might stage for Halloween, all of which included one or more jack-o'-lanterns as decor. One was an apple and nut party for teenagers. I feel like if you pitch that today, you might get some shrugs. Uh, And another was a jack-o'-lantern supper that included sandwiches made with bread cut to look like jack-o'-lanterns. A look through almost 
any town's papers around Halloween season from the mid-20th century on shows loads of similar articles, although I never found a single one that mentioned Stingy Jack or warding away evil spirits. It was all just in fun. Today, of course, you can buy plastic jack-o'-lanterns in all kinds of colors and realistic-looking fake pumpkins for carving or already carved. Real pumpkins remain an important part of U.S. agriculture. In 2020, an estimated 1.5 billion pounds of pumpkins were grown in the U.S. Illinois has long been the country's top producer, with Pennsylvania, New York, Indiana, Michigan, California, Texas, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Virginia as the other big pumpkin states. And if you want to carve a real pumpkin, but you're not that confident about it, you can also buy all kinds of special pumpkin carving tools and kits to get that job done. And now the jack-o'-lantern is everywhere, and I'm a happy little ghoul. (laughs) (laughs) I have uh, two pieces of listener mail, and they're both brief, which is why I'm including two. And they feature apples, so that seems still in our autumnal zone. Uh, The first is from our listener, Tabitha, and it is titled, Honey Fungus Hunting. Tabitha writes, hello, I just wanted to share that I was listening to your podcast about the Bramley apple tree being infected by honey fungus right as I was out hunting for honey mushrooms because they are edible. I am a certified wild mushroom forager and I teach people how to safely ID and eat the honey fungus and how it does infect trees. Your podcast is my favorite. Thank you for all that you both do. Thank you for that because I had not seen in any of my uh, research on the tree that you could eat those. I will say, please do not go eat some mushrooms from near a tree based on this audio description. (laughs) You need someone like Tabitha to guide you who has done all of the training and research. Yeah, any mushroom identification requires like several different, not just, oh, this is growing near the tree and is honey-colored. That is not enough. There are some honey-colored mushrooms that grow near trees that can kill you. So. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Don't. I am terrified of of wild mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Um unless they have been gathered by someone like that is at a farmers market that I know is certified. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I follow some foragers on TikTok whose work I really enjoy, but I also uh We grew a lot of things in a garden growing up, but my mother was very clear on the direction that we were not to eat anything we found in the wild because we would immediately die, which is uh, an overly conservative look at things that grow in the wild. But, like, uh, all of the foragers that I watch are super, like, you have to do these multiple things. You cannot just look at, like, the color of the mushroom or whatever. Yeah, I kind of, I'm with your mom. That's a better safe than sorry when it comes to kids who maybe don't always exhibit A-plus judgment. Sure. I know I didn't. Uh, my other email comes from our listener, Becky, who writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, your latest eponymous foods episode on the Macintosh and Bramley apples gave me a craving for apple pie. Of course, that calls for a trip to the orchard. As I wanted to make both pie and apple salad and remembering the episode, I put the Macintosh apples down and bought cartlands. So far, two delicious apple pies. The best part of a visit to our local orchard is apple cider slushes with caramel syrup. Incredible. That sounds amazing. Uh, Here is a photo of our rescue pup, Rocky, wearing a hoodie. Yes, I heard the end of the Ann Radcliffe episode and clothing on animals. Rocky is not a fan. Rocky is so precious. 
so precious. Uh, and then Becky mentions that she met both of us in the before times at the live show in Indianapolis, uh, which hopefully we'll do again sometime soonish. Rocky yeah. is so cute. I want to kiss that face 7,000 times. Like, he just has one of those faces. Uh, thank you for writing us, both Tabitha and Becky. Uh, we hope anybody that's enjoying pumpkin or apple or anything autumnal yummy right now is having the very best time of it. Uh, you can write to us at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you can go ahead and do that on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.